Our scripture lesson today uh, should be familiar to you. It comes from the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let's share in God's good word together. That day about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized, and were signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Life is better together. Life is better together. I just saw Courtney and Art over there. You guys are so cute. So sweet. I married them not too long ago. It was a beautiful time right up here. And less than 24 hours ago, um, a young girl that came to our church in 2006 as a six-year-old was married right here. Uh, Courtney Coode and John Kirk, you'll see their photo later in the service. And so, so many of us have been here Friday and Saturday and Sunday, and it's been a great celebration all weekend long. And it's my joy to get to share that with you, that when we come together, we come together. It's a partnership. It's a family. It's something that the world does not and cannot know without the love of God, where people show up for one another, not because they get paid, not because they have to, but, but their hearts can't let them do otherwise because we love one another. And that love is poured into our lives through Jesus Christ, who, whose example gave his entire life. And so over the next number of weeks, uh, four weeks to be exact, we're going to look at life together, what it looks like and why it matters. And I wanted to share with you about the weddings that we have in this church because it's a great example of that. And of course, the, the scriptures tell us that um, heaven will have a big banquet table at it. It's going to be a beautiful, wonderful party where everyone is invited. And we all have a choice to make. Will we come to the table? Will we come to the table? So we can talk about these things and we can dream about these things. But it is hard to find these days, true community. And, and sometimes we, we even struggle to allow ourselves to hope for it. Because when you hope for it and it doesn't happen, it can be so painful. So painful, you're like, oh, I knew it. It's just like everybody else, just like all the other places in the world. Rosemary Dougherty writes it like this. She says, unfortunately today, friends, because there is so much isolation and loneliness, people often get confused about what they're looking for in community. They're unable to discriminate between the companionship of interested people and the community of people who can help them seek God. Those are two different things. There's nothing wrong with coming together with like-minded folks if you want to be a part of a country club or a political action committee, but that's not church. It's not community. It doesn't help you find God. Over the next few weeks, I'll be referencing uh, Life Together, uh, this book written by Ruth Haley Barton. And so um, it's, we have numbers of books on Philippians. Uh, this is a book that's more encompassing around what real community looks like. Uh, if you want to follow along with it, uh, you can find it in our app. And, and so I want to share some of the things I've been reading. Uh, Barton says this, community is the most over-promised and under-delivered aspect of the church today. See, people come, they're not looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends, for family, for people they can count on, really count on. It's hard to find in our world. And so, you know, each week we say that we're a community that's devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So I want to make really clear, really sure that you understand what we mean by fellowship. And here at Acts 2, that word fellowship, what we mean is partnership. 
partnership, people who are invested in one another, people who can count on one another, people who show up for one another. It's not just bringing a dish to a potluck, although that's good. I like the potluck. But it's much more than that. It's saying, I can count on you and you can count on us, no matter what comes. No matter what comes. And again, Barton would say, it is possible to hang around other Christians a lot. Meet regularly for worship, study our Bibles, but not change at all in ways that count. And that can happen too. That can happen too. Are we growing in our faith? Are we becoming more like Christ? Are we becoming more loving, less irritable, more able to show up for people? And again, she would say, though we can't transform others, even ourselves, we can create an environment. That's what we're trying to do here. Soil, if you will. Create an environment where transformation takes place. We, we can't make tomatoes, but we can make sure we got good soil to give it a shot. And water and sun, those sorts of things. And so around here, that's what we're trying to do, to create an environment that if you want to grow, you can. You've got a fighting chance, and there are people that come alongside you that when the winds blow, they prop you up. And when the sun beats down on you, they provide some shade and some water for nourishment. And by the way, if you're outside any time this summer, get some water. Man, it's hot out there. So, we are convinced that the richest fruits of community life do not grow in a garden of uncertainty. And we assume that these are the people God has given us to grow with even when the going gets tough. So friends, one of the hardest parts of church today, especially churches like ours that are growing, is who's with us? Who's really with us? I mean, it's been really difficult post-COVID Like we got into COVID and we had a group of people that we knew this was our community and then we went online and then some people, you know, we don't see them and we we don't know whether they're online or not. Some check in, some don't. Uh, If they're on the app, then they do check in oftentimes. If they're watching on YouTube, they don't because no one wants to use the remote to try to spell their name, right? (laughs) I mean, I get that. But like, who's with us? It's that uncertainty that undoes us. And so, you know, there are people that I haven't seen in a year, and I'm like, hmm, I wonder if they're with us. And I'll call them, like, oh, yeah, I'm with you on, online every week. I'll, come, I'll call somebody else up I haven't seen in a year, and they won't call me back. They're gone. Never saw it coming. It's that uncertainty that will undo us. We have to know. Who's fellowship? Who is really fellowship? Who is really partnering with the work of God for the kingdom of God for the people of God? And for the transformation of the world. We understand that if we don't work our stuff out here in this community, we will probably meet the same issues and ourselves in the next that we attach ourselves to, Barton says. So here's the thing. Uh, In case you haven't been here before, um, this is not a place where we allow fighting. We don't. If there's a disagreement... We try to deal with it same day, we talk to one another, we pray about it, we bless one another, and we bless one another here, or we bless one another on our ways to someplace else. But there's no fighting, there's no anger, there's no, um, you know, mess here. That's not what church is about. And so we just don't do that. And so we tell people up front, if you're here and you really need to be in a church fight, keep, there's the door. Keep going. We, don't, we haven't had that here in 20 years, and we don't plan on starting now. So when it comes to growth, when it comes to the environment where good things, good hearts can grow, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, generosity, self-control, the things of the Spirit, you have to have the right environment for that. 
And we need a community of faith, each other. When we say community of faith, we actually mean you, like the people that you know names of, which is why it's important that you know the names of the people sitting around you. Right? We have to know one another to be able to grow into the people of God that he has created us to be all along, all along. It's not enough just to kind of show up and, and wonder. I mean, it's good. It's, it's, it's better than nothing, but it, it won't really help you grow in the ways that we're called to grow. And so in the early days of the church, when we were still meeting over at Shine Middle School, uh, we came up with this little saying that spells out acts. We thought we were really clever. It goes like this, authentic community through the spirit. That's what we're trying to, that's the environment we're trying to create here. Will you say it with me? Authentic community through the spirit. What we mean is no faking, no pretending, no presuming, no pushing. We are who we are. We're authentic. Now, it's also true um, the God that brings us here and loves us as we are loves us enough not to leave us there, right? It's one thing to have a bad day. It's another thing to have a bad life. And so you come in, you can have a bad day the first time you're here, but we want to work with you to change that, to transform that. You can be your authentic self. We can be our authentic self. We speak truth to one another in a loving, kind, uplifting way. One of the most terrifying things that um, the staff has done, and that we've mentioned this before, is that all the preachers come up and give the sermon on Wednesday, fully knowing that there's at least eight people that are going to tell us how to make it better. And if, if you don't know the team, that can be really scary. But if you do know the team and you know how loving they are and how kind they are and how gentle they are with us, every sermon gets better. Because of the truth spoken in love and grace. And we grow better together. It's a beautiful thing. But man, is it scary the first time. Right, Robert? Yeah. 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 See, we gather in Christ's name to be Christ's presence in the world. And order order our lives in such a way to bring heaven to earth. It's not just the gathering. It's also saying, and when we go from here, this is how we live. And not, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Not maybe this person does and that person doesn't. That we as the people of faith, we gather to be sent. We gather to go out as light into the world, which is why we end every service that way. We go out intentionally to be light and life and joy and blessing to the world. Uh, The great theologian Robert Mulholland says it like this. We can no more be conformed to the image of Christ outside corporate spirituality, church, than a coal can continue to burn outside of the fire. I, uh, many of y'all know that um, I like to, I've been trying to grow uh, roses over the last year and a half or so. Um, and uh, I'm not patting myself on the back. I just want you to know how deeply I am into this. I have 41 rose bushes I planted in the last two years around the, around the house. And so I've, I've become, I, I like to envision myself as a backup plan of becoming a florist. And um, so I, I'll play around with different flowers and those sorts of things. So I, I tried the other day, and I, I cut off something just to have some green. And man, was I disappointed when I figured out that even when I put it in water, it wasn't 10 minutes before that particular limb was completely dead and droopy. That's not true for all, but for that one it was. I was like, oh, yep, that's what it's like when we get outside of community, when we get disconnected from the vine of Christ, God's people. We can look good for a moment, but if we're not careful, we'll just wilt. Not through any fault of our own, just, it, we just do. We, we need one another and for all kinds of things. 
and particularly when it comes to ministry, which, again, we'll say this over and over again. You'll hear this all summer long as we deal with camp and other things. We never do ministry alone. Say it with me. Never do ministry alone, not once. We need one another. It keeps us safe, keeps others safe. And so over the next uh, number of weeks, I want to show you what real church can look like, church that changes the world, church that comes from every nation, every tribe, from the reaches of the earth, from, from the most um, low in society to the highest in society. It happened in the church of Philippi. And, and Paul writes back to that church that we know in the letter to Philippians. Now, it, it's kind of funny, Megan said in the children's time, is it Philippi, is it Philippi? The answer is yes, because in Greek there's no long I. But I can't get myself to say Philippians, Philippi. So uh, we use I in, in English. And so if you go to the Holy Land, you'll hear uh, words you know, said in lots of different ways. They're all basically correct if it's in your native language. So around here we say Philippi. Uh, if you were Greek, you'd say Philippi. So they're both right. And it is in this church at this time that Paul starts his very first church in Europe. This is the very first one. And it, he does this in about 50 AD. So, you know, uh, Jesus is going to die in the 30s, early 30s uh, AD in the Roman city of Philippi. It's located between Rome and Istanbul, Italy and Turkey. Um, and one of the things that made this church special was that it sat on the main road of the entire world. Uh, the, it's a Roman road, right? So Italy's going to be over here. You're going to go all the way. There's Philippi. You're going to come over here. Uh, and this is going to be Istanbul. At one time, it was called Byzantium. And so if you, if you zoom in, uh, it's a part of the region of Macedonia. Here's Greece. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to go all the way across to Istanbul, right there where, where it splits between Europe and Asia. And so this is where this church is. And Paul travels there, and he starts this church. I had the great pleasure of going to Istanbul a number of years ago. We had a family uh, of our church that uh, did some work over there uh, to bless people. Uh, it was during the Syrian refugee crisis, and, and this church, you all, um, made a big difference for people, helping them get food and clothing and shelter and heat. But this is the um, Haggai Sophia. Uh, it's a great cathedral of the early church. And um, there's also a blue mosque across from it. So you have this major Muslim site. You have this uh, Christian site. And inside, it's amazing. And it's gone from, um, you know, one set of beliefs to another set of beliefs and back. And so Jesus is in here, but you also will see uh, Muslim writings because uh, Turkey's had both of those influences. And outside, you'd hardly even know it was there, there's this marker. It, it It just sits right outside there. Um, under a tree, actually. Yeah, I mean, you'd hardly even know it was there. And that's actually the end of that road. That's, that's the end of it. That's where it all ended. Where when Rome was the greatest power of the world, they, they placed that marker and there, there you are. Just right there. You can go see it today. So Philippi then, in the middle of this road, was a beautiful and affluent military city on the main road. One of the problems Rome had was as they conquered the world, they had to do something with their soldiers, something with their veterans. And so they would basically either create or transform cities into basically military bases uh, for you know, folks that are like ex-generals, that sort of thing. And so this is where they were housed. This is where they were taken care of. And the church was started, catch this, by a wide range of folks, right? Lydia is a female millionaire. She's an amazing business person. Uh, today it would be millions and millions of dollars. 
And at the same time, in the very next um, section, you're going to see a penniless slave girl. The people with the most, people with the least, and then there's also just a middle class working jailer. You find all of this in the book of Acts chapter 16. You'll see the actual story of Paul starting the church. It goes like this. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, which you saw, and a Roman colony, which you know, we remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, the millionaire, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. Read this next part with me. The Lord opened her heart. Again, we're talking about environment right? We, we don't open people's hearts. The Lord opens people's hearts to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. William Barclay, um, who I've been reading since seminary, writes it like this. He says, the early church, friends, it was an all-inclusive church. With people from a cross-section of society, a cross-section of nationality, from the top to the bottom of the social scale, from the east to the west of the world as they knew it, Philippi shows us the ideal of the Christian church in miniature. That's why we look at it. This is something to work towards. And what we find in this situation is that God takes a difficult situation and uses it for good because that's who God is. That's God's character. Because it wasn't an easy start. And those of you who've been with me since 99 know a church plant is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy start. You, you have all sorts of things that come against you. And so the story goes like this in Acts 16. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, right after Lydia comes on board, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She wasn't wrong. That's exactly what they were doing. But how would she know that? So she kept doing this for many days. But Paul, being Paul, very much annoyed, turned to the spirit, not to the girl, but really to the spirit in the girl to say, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that, read it with me, their hope of making money was gone. Well, that's still a problem today, isn't it? I mean, think, I mean, it just gets in our way. They seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them before the magistrates, the generals, They said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are, read it with me, not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. Again, this is a very uh, high military citizenship's a big deal in this town. We'll talk more about that next week. And so the crowd then joins in attacking Paul and Silas, right? And the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had given them a severe flogging, and if if you're around here on Good Friday, you know that a flogging could kill a person. They actually knew almost exactly to the very lash what would kill them, and so they'd back it up by one, so they would barely remain alive. They threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. And following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell, the one that's supposed to be most secure, and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and, say with me, singing hymns to God. Does that sound right? <laughs> Have y'all ever been to a jail? I mean, it's, it's a hard place. Yet, yet they were undeterred, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. See, that's the thing about our faith. People are always listening. People are always looking. Things when it's easy and things when it's hard. You know what happens next? God gets involved. Suddenly an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately 
All the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. It's a miracle. Now, you'd say, well, how does this happen? Well, just think of it. If you dig out a cave and you put in the, the iron bars in a cave and then the cave moves, what happens? They all fall down. Right? So everybody's free. Everybody's free. And when the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself. Now, that seems weird to us. In those days, if you were a soldier and you were watching someone and they got away, they were going to kill you. They were going to torture you and then kill you, as an example. So he's like, well, I might as well take care of it myself. And since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped, right? But Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't harm yourself, for we're all here. We could go, but we're not going to. We're going to stay right here. The jailer called for the lights, and rushing in, he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, believe on the Lord Jesus. It's all about Jesus, friends, then and now. And you will be saved. You and your household, everybody. Children, slaves, workers, all of it. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them, washed their wounds, and then he, read with me, and his entire family were baptized without delay. You'll notice that there's no age of accountability here. Right? So in the scripture, if you're part of the family, you're baptized. Infants, middle schoolers, however it is. Right? That, that's the tradition of the church. And he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. Thanks be to God. That's quite a story. And that's the first church in Europe. That, that's, that sounds like an odd mix of people to come together, doesn't it? Now, when we talk about hardship, that, that's hardship. And so often in you know, suburban Edmond, sometimes we think that we're really going through something tough. Come on, right? So I want to show you what hardship does not look like. It does not look like this, right? Oh, no, I got a scratch on my iPhone. My earring, my diamonds are too big. It doesn't look like this. Oh, no, my friends have laptops. I only have a desktop. It is odd carrying it into school, but, you know. I mean, the things that we think of hardship, they're friends. We just have to rethink this. And by law, Roman citizens were protected against scourging, against this flogging that had happened to Paul and Silas. But Paul's like, oh, ho, ho, I'm a Roman citizen. This is going to get good. So he takes it and uses it as an advantage because he and Silas are Roman citizens. And they knew that they had been treated wrongly. And so when morning came, the magistrate sent the police and they said, oh, let those men go. Like, let's get them on out of here. And the jailer reported the message to Paul saying the magistrates, right, the people in charge, sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Like, go, 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 go. And Paul realized, uh-uh, no, no, no. Mm-mm. They beat us in public? Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens? Mm-mm. And have thrown us into prison? And now they're going to discharge us in secret? <laughs> no way, he says. Certainly not. Now, see, that's the difference between me and Paul. I'm like, you're letting me go? I'll see you later. I mean, that would be me. (laughs) Not Paul. Paul's like, I'm right here, right now. This is a moment to let people know about the Lord. Let them come and take us out themselves. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid. They were afraid. They knew they had done wrong. And they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. You know, Paul was eating that up. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. That's the end of that story. And roughly five to ten years later, it depends on whether you think Paul is in prison in Rome or Paul is in prison in Ephesus, and they're really smart people that think either one. So roughly five to ten years later, Paul writes from prison back to that church, to those people that have been caring for him. He's no longer around. He started other churches. He's now in prison. 
And he writes this in Philippians 1. He says, you have this church. After all, stuck with me all the way from the time I was thrown in jail, put on trial and came out of it in one piece. All along, you have experienced with me the most generous help from God. When no one else would help Paul, these people helped Paul. He says, so this is my prayer, that your love will flourish. That's a good prayer. And that you will not only love much, but well. Friends, I hope we're learning to love well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, authentic, not sentimental gush. That has no place. He says, so live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus would be proud of. Now, that's a great question at the end of every day. Is Jesus proud of the life I live today? Bountiful in fruits from the soul, making Jesus Christ attractive to all. You'll notice that's not denomination. That's not church people. That's all inclusive. The people that don't know Jesus at all. The people that are against Jesus. We want to make him attractive to everyone. That's our job. Getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God, Paul writes. So in Paul's world, when people were put into prison, you need to understand this, they weren't given any food by their captors. No health care. They had to rely on their friends, which is, I believe, why Jesus says, if you have someone in prison, visit them. Because if you don't, they're going to die. You'll starve to death. So the church in Philippi then sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus. Try that one on for fun. On a dangerous journey to bring money and care for all of Paul's needs. So this church that he started five to ten years earlier sends a lot of money. Enough money to care for anything Paul's going to need. And they send it with this guy, basically in cash. And you can imagine, we we sent $10,000 to Puerto Rico after the hurricane. Um, a number of years ago. And it was a dangerous thing. It was a very dangerous thing. So we sent it with someone with the FBI, right, who was strong and trained and could, could do those things. It can be really hard and dangerous to help people and to take money to people who need it. It was then, it is now. William Barclay would say this, gift giving in the first century created a social bond between giver and receiver, obligated the receiver to reciprocate in exchange either by thanksgiving or more likely by a return gift. And this sealed their relationship. It's, it's good manners in the ancient world. It was a shame honor culture. It wasn't required, but it was something um, that was known uh, around them. And, and that's a good example for us. We don't do good things so that good things will happen to us. But you'll be amazed how often that does happen. You do something good out of the goodness of your heart because the Lord leads you. And good stuff returns. Often. Not always. And that's not why you do it. But you'll be amazed how God blesses you. So this has been a controversy among churches for a long time. And that is, should Paul receive money for planting churches? Well, this is how it worked. Paul received no financial support while he was planting a church while living in that city at the time. But, and, and this, is, this is a huge and, once a church was doing well and Paul was on the road again, he did accept donations. That's how he did the next set of work. In the custom of this common life of generous giving and receiving. So as we give, gifts come back. That's appropriate. That's good. But it's not transactional. It's not quid pro quo. It's not, Paul can't do that at the time because then he'd be playing favorites with people who are funding his ministry at the moment. Does it make sense? But once he's gone, he can receive all of it. So he does the blessing without expectation of return in the moment, but with a hope that God will fulfill that later. So there's no obligation for the Philippians to respond to the gift of the gospel of grace that Paul preached to them. N.T. Wright, um, the biblical scholar, writes it like this. The fact that people from a different country 
would raise money and send one of their number, Epaphroditus, on the dangerous journey to carry it to an imprisoned friend speaks volumes for the esteem and love in which they held Paul. Now, maybe you have um, fallen prey to this temptation as well. N.T. Wright says, People sometimes speak today as though Paul was an awkward, difficult, unpopular sort of person. I've heard that. But folk like that don't normally find this kind of support, reaching them unbidden from friends far away. I mean, what kind of person must Paul have been for them to raise money and to send it and to care for them? It's not somebody they didn't like, for sure. So the unwritten rule of ancient gift giving was to reciprocate generously according to your own resources. If you just had a little, then you would do what you could. If you had a lot, you'd do what you could. Still true today. Scott McKnight would say the best kind of common life involves gratitude, contentment, and affirmation. And that's right. That's what we're trying to do here. That's what fellowship looks like. It looks like gratitude. It looks like contentment. It looks like affirmation. So imagine, friends, with me for just a moment, a place where you can walk in and the first thing you hear is, we're glad you're here. That's gratitude. That's gratitude. Imagine a place where the people say, no, we're okay financially and our time together is a gift to you while you check us out. That's contentment. That's contentment. And imagine a place where you hear each week, God loves you and so do we. No questions asked. God loves you, so do we. Do we all have work to do? Sure we do, but that's, that's not first. First is God loves you, so do we. So Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. Gratitude. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the central idea throughout the letter is to partner with one another in a common life, something we do together in a very intentional way. And a common life in Christ includes praying, not just like, oh yeah, and remember Aunt so-and-so. It's a, we're praying for profound transformations for one another. That the real needs of, of one another are met and that we grow in Christ-likeness. And so this is a prayer that I hope you'll pray with me um, all week. It's a beautiful prayer from verses 9 to 11. It says this, and this is my prayer. Say it with me. That your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best. So that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Now, that's a good prayer. And so as a way for us to live into this, I I want to invite you to pray that each day for someone you love because that is a good and effective and wonderful prayer. I hope you'll do that with me. Uh, You can do that on your phone um, or with a printed Bible, however you want to do that. But I invite you to pray that for someone as you pray for them intentionally, that they become the person that Christ has wanted them to be all along. So, if you'll pray this next prayer with me. Jesus, thank you for teaching us that when we love you and love everyone else, that somehow you made it that we have kept all your commandments throughout Scripture. Holy Spirit, make us one with you, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, both now and forever. Amen. Now with the confidence of children gone, we share the Lord's Prayer with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.